Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Are you a scholar, journalist, or writer focused on Palestine? Contribute to the foremost journal on the past, present, and future of Jerusalem. The Jerusalem Quarterly is soliciting articles for peer review, essays, and letters from Jerusalem. Send your work to jq at palestine-studies.org or see palestine-studies.org forward slash journals for more info. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's with great pleasure that my guest is Joel Stokes. Joel is currently a PhD student at UCL London, University College London, and he's working on what i just picking up from his webpage, Heritage and Social Political Legitimacy, a historical study of Palestinian archaeology, archaeological agency within contested space. But you recently published an article with a Jerusalem Quarterly, Privatized Heritage, Spaces and Control of Historical Narratives, The City of David, and Silwan, a case study. So today we're going to definitely talk about archaeology, Silwan, the City of David, which is one of the most controversial topics related to the ancient history of Jerusalem. And in order to do that, first of all, I want to say, Joel, thank you. Hi, Roberto. Thank you very much for having me on. So the first question I want to ask is uh, if you can tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you came to work on this very controversial and heated topic. Sure. So the the origin story for my interest in this topic, uh, I suppose, could could start uh, numerous places. I, the one I tend to tell people is I, I tend to preface uh, my explanation with um, sort of a positionality statement that I grew up in a very uh, progressive, uh, liberal reform 
uh, Jewish household in the UK um, and was heavily involved in Jewish youth movements throughout my childhood and early adult life. Um, and so through those experiences, I had a, a very particular sort of engagement with um, Israel-Palestine um, and, and the conflict in particular. Um, and during that time, I sort of, my, my, my understanding of my experiences were that they were left-wing and they were about as left-wing as you can get, uh, particularly for the, for the British context. Um, and that's that experiences of the youth movement sort of culminated in a, a year uh, abroad, living in Israel, Palestine, sort of a Shnat Shavut year, a year of service. So that was volunteering, things like that. Um, but really, I got a, a culture shock when I came to started going to university for my undergrad. Uh, I went to university at Liverpool, uh, did for my undergrad and masters, uh, and there I really started to engage in more of the political discourse around Israel-Palestine. Uh, at the time I was doing ancient history, um, but to be honest, that never really uh, lit a fire inside of me. What really lit a fire inside of me was looking at how ancient history is received today. Um, so reception studies, uh, it's, it's called in some arenas. Um, and so that, that really interests me. And then uh, early on in my master's year uh, did a master's of research i came across uh this 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 article about the city of david uh, which i visited on my during my time many times in israel palestine um and knew it was a somewhat controversial site but really didn't understand why um and then i started delving into the literature about the city of david uh, and it is predominantly about the city of david not silwan um and very quickly sort of started to realize that that the literature uh, is very repetitive. There's very little being said uh, that goes beyond looking at the city of David for the city of David's sake, rather than the wider implications um, uh, of what it means, particularly in, for that area of Jerusalem. So then from then on, my academic studies have really started to hone in on various aspects of the city of David, and then that takes me most recently to my PhD, and now in my third year, looking at the really sort of uh, trying to look at the city of David uh, as one very small part of this story of East Jerusalem, uh, and trying to uh, uncover more of the history, the archaeology, as you said in the introduction, the archaeological agency of populations that have lived and continue to live. In East, in East Jerusalem, um, them being predominantly Palestinians. I want to ask you later about the agency of Palestinians, or particularly their skills, since they've been involved with archaeological digs in Jerusalem for generations. One of the previous guests of the, of the podcast was the uh, director of Emek Shaveh, which is a very important organization, sort of dealing with the political aspects of uh, archaeology in Jerusalem. But one thing I want to ask you, because eventually with Nemek Shaver, we didn't really delve into the question, what is the city of David, really? What is the city of David? Um, it's good. Let me first ask you, so is this the, the new? Uh, yes, uh, it is the new director, director. absolutely. Okay, so not, not uh, 
not Jonathan. Um, so I've spent a, a bit of time speaking to Emic Chavera as an organization, lots of the researchers and the CEOs, including the two people we just mentioned. But what is the City David is a good question. And in, in my view, uh, I think it's important first to state that lots of people will tell you lots of things about the City of David. Uh, and all those things may or may not be true uh, at the same time. So what I'm about to say is is selective based on you know the content of the conversation where I want to take the conversation because City David is uh, there's no getting away from this a very important archaeological site for many many cultures that have lived uh, or have some affiliation to Jerusalem um, and there is incredibly important archaeological finds from what the proprietors of the city of David would call the first temple period. Um, so sort of a thousand-ish, thousand to 800 BC, BCE. Um, but in a modern context, the city of David is also the site of, it's at the forefront really, the ideological and geographical forefront of uh, Israel's occupation of uh, Palestinian land. Um, its location is beyond the Green Line. Um, so it's located in East Jerusalem, but is formally recognized by the Israeli government as part of the Jerusalem municipality following 67, and then the formal annexation in, in 1980. Um, and today, the city of David is, in my view, less an archaeological site, less a scientific endeavor, and more a... Uh, tourist um, extravaganza come uh, Disneyland come uh, yeah it, every time I go back it gets more and more ridiculous um, uh, just how spectacular the infrastructure that's being put in there the the tourist infrastructure I mean the money that's being spent on on really uh, shaping uh, and not just shaping but deliberately guiding the tourist experience uh, through a very particular narrative and that's one of a sort of uh, quite religious um, cyclical Jewish Israeli return to the land um, messianic almost uh, interpretation of the archaeology um, and the result of all this is that there are uh, the many many people whose history make up the majority of the time of Jerusalem that the majority of the time that Jerusalem existed whose stories are not being told which I think is one of the goals that Emic Chauvet try and educate on, uh, on their tours. They try and talk about how Jerusalem is a place where, which, which archaeology, the archaeology of Jerusalem represents many peoples. Um, uh, however, I also think it's probably one of the places where Emic Chauvet's work fails to reach the ears of the people they really want to try and reach um, because that story when you're talking to tourists, it's really hard to make exciting. It's really hard to, to, to find people who are willing to listen to a story that includes many, many cultures. People want to hear about themselves. People want to hear about cultures that they feel affiliated with, and they want that story to be exciting. So that's what the City of David is now. I mean, I can go a little bit into the, um, the people who run it, and so that's more of the political side, if that's what you want as well. But yeah, in terms of the park, the site itself, that's the city of David uh, at the moment.
I'm curious about how the city of David plays uh, a role in your own work. I mean, obviously, this is an archaeological site, but he, as you mentioned, it's also very political, controversial, and is about, uh, let's, let's call it manipulation of heritage. Everybody wants a piece of it, right? Because it does represent different people at different stages uh, throughout history. So I was curious about uh, what is the city of David uh, for you in your work? So to be honest with you, the city David has taken a back seat uh, in terms of my interpretation of East Jerusalem. Um, and that's a deliberate decision. That's uh, uh, that's from reading the literature and sort of feeling like the city of David, although critical, a lot of the literature uh, has still forefronted uh, a settler narrative. Um, so at the moment, um, the city of David in my work um, predominantly represents a historical archive. So I'm spending a lot of time in the Palestine Exploration Fund uh, archives in London to look at uh, the work, the history of workers, basically, and the excavations, because the excavations have been going on for um, over 150 years. Um, and I'm very interested in how uh, the sort of missing stories that some some exist in the archives and some don't, how those missing stories um, may shape uh, current claims, current claims of ownership, current claims of legitimacy, if they're brought back to the uh, the forefront of people's consciousness. Um, and in a modern context, the city of David also represents this sort of um, a countermeasure against against the people that I'm talking with, uh, talking to and during my fieldwork, because, you know, I spend a lot of time with Palestinians, both just residents of Silwan, which is the neighborhood of Jerusalem that surrounds the city of David, that the city of David is uh, bang in the middle of, um, and also Palestinians who work for uh, organizations who try and uh, raise awareness of the settler uh, aspect of the city of David agenda, um, which I don't feel like that you've covered, but maybe we can come back to that. Um, and so, although not directly engaging with the city of David, um, it's always there, it's always in the background. Um, it's always shaping the conversations that I'm having with uh, Palestinians in Siwan. Um, as the article, the article that you mentioned at the beginning, it sort of talks about one of the issues for someone who looks like me, uh, and with my background researching in Jerusalem, is that I look, I could pass as an Israeli, uh, and I could also pass as like an Israeli security guard. So just me walking around Silwan, find it very, I found it very difficult to find people who uh, weren't immediately suspicious of of uh, what I was doing and why I was asking questions. Um, so that legacy of the city, David, and the ongoing violence um, and oppression that the city of David represents for many people in East Jerusalem continually informs uh, fieldwork and my thinking about the work and how I write about it and the opportunities I get to uh, conduct research. Looking to you, but also to our previous guests who work on uh, archaeology and ethnography, I gather that there, there is a sense there's a growing sense amongst Palestinians, particularly around Silwan, about the value of heritage, how heritage can be manipulated and used for political purposes. And so I was wondering, what is your experience of that sense of heritage? 
Yeah, when I when I first started my field work um, at the start of this summer, it was a it was a goal of mine to try and find Palestinians who um, had been involved in the last British excavations at the city of David under Kathleen Kenyon in the sixties, during the period when uh, the city of David basically sat in no man's land between um, Israel and Jordan. Um, and because I knew Palestinians have been involved, heavily involved, Kathleen Kenyon writes about them uh, a lot, and, and her biographers have also mentioned people by name, um, very notable Palestinians by name, uh, who have been involved in the excavations there. Um, and then against against that, I also had the literature, which, which basically tells you that Palestinians aren't that interested in archaeology for a number of reasons. Um, the most obvious one is that because it's been used as a, a tool of Israeli nation building, um, there's many in Palestinian society that feel like it's it's not an appropriate tool uh, or it's not a necessary tool for Palestinians to use for their own ideas of heritage and legitimacy and ownership. And I also view those uh, three things quite uh, neatly interlinked, heritage, ownership and legitimacy. Um, so... But when I got to Sawan, I also found that there's uh, a very rich uh, scene, basically, of of in Sawan in particular, of um, practices that some people might not even call heritage, but I would call it heritage, taking a critical heritage view of it, um, that um, called upon sort of iconography, Palestinian history, um, famous figures in Palestinian society, um, literature, that kind of thing, that um, are all small parts of forming. I, it's diff I don't want to put it as like a, a too much in the words of conflict, but like they form part of a, a resistance against the city of David because they're telling a story about how Palestinians have been in this area for centuries. Um, and it's also difficult to frame Palestinian these Palestinian heritage practices in the same way as archaeology is being used at the city of David because they have different functions uh, and they take on different forms. Um, but my experience of of the heritage practices taking place in Sawan was was diverse, um, extremely innovative. Um, and flourishing, really flourishing. Um, it, and it's interesting because it's, <clears throat> in the heritage world, we have UNESCO uh, famously delineates between tangible and intangible heritage and you know all these things. And I would argue that isn't all heritage in some way intangible because um, we don't really know why we're attached to these things um, <clears throat> or what gives us a claim over this thing over someone else. Um, and it's interesting that most of the um, the, the Palestinian heritage practices that I came across would be classed as intangible in, in, this, in the UNESCO's view. Um, but I think I argue a little bit in the article that it's, they take on very tangible, they provide tangible results um, in terms of community building um, and storytelling and that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah. I want to go back to the uh, Palestine Exploration Fund. Felicity Cobbing was a guest of a podcast, and with her, we talked about uh, 
British uh, archaeologists, uh, men and women, as you mentioned, uh, that you know excavated Jerusalem, and we talked about some of her stories, and we briefly touched upon the question of Palestinian workers, but uh, obviously that was not the main topic of the conversation. Now this is part of your work, so I was wondering if you can tell us more about uh, who were the workers. Uh, where did they come from? Are they from Jerusalem, nearby villages? I don't know, I'm thinking about Lifta, for instance. And to what extent they contributed to the uh, uh, excavation, but also I'm interested in understanding what was their understanding of uh, the digging, essentially. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Sure. So um, a lot of the records are, as you said, in the Palestine Exploration, Exploration Fund because they were predominantly the people funding excavations at the City of David in, uh, in general. Um, the Bade um, Museum did a really excellent exhibition early this year or last year about Palestinian laborers elsewhere. Um, I think Tel Al-Hesi, um, elsewhere in Palestine. Um, and a lot of those workers came from uh, places, villages in Egypt, a very particular, I've forgotten the name, but a very particular village in Egypt and they'd be um, transported basically um, seasonally. But the city of David, um, the records sort of suggest that most of the uh, workers who were involved in excavations at all levels um, came predominantly from Jerusalem and from the neighborhood of Silwan. And that kind of makes sense, even for how um, excavations are done today. You might bring in area supervisors with particular um, expertise 
from from elsewhere but like if you can use um get the local community uh involved uh then why not and not just for labor but to you know if the local community are willingly getting involved in excavations then it might help smooth over um any difficulties you have over land rights or um how long the excavations are happening or damaged thing damaged uh property or that kind of thing which there's a lot of in the archive um lots of disputes lots of letters to talk about disputes between the palestinian landowners and the uh, excavation heads and um as you can imagine that most of the uh descriptions of these palestinians uh aren't particularly nice um just because of the colonial setting that they were written in and the time you know um but there's a really good example which um a colleague of uh felicity cobbing um a, a friend i think as well um sarah irving um who wrote an article about <clears throat> which i talk about as well in my own work um uh, about abu yusuf who worked with um, Bliss and Dickey uh, in the late, mid-1890s at the City of David. Um, and he had a really good reputation, not just for uh, good, reliable work, but for excellent archaeological sort of nous, understanding the land. Um, and uh, And for being a, a really useful um, go-between between the local population and um, and the Bliss and Dickey. Um, I think there's, so there's two sides of this story. One is that there's, so basically, yes, the workers have predominantly been Palestinian. And in some cases, these Palestinians started in the low, lowest ranks, you know, dirt shoveling, that kind of thing, uh, women and children included, basket carriers. Um, and some would make their way up the ranks um, through um, through long-term relationships and returning each season with, with uh, the PEF and the PEF's representatives that they were sending um, would be uh, positioned as foremen or even directing digs on certain days when, when heads were ill or things like that. So they... For for a lot of it and for the majority of the time, although there might have been a British person or an American person actually telling people where to dig, the Palestinians were shaping the land themselves, shaping the archaeological landscape themselves. Um, and there's this is interesting because of the thing we spoke about before about Palestinians now not really viewing archaeology as a as a as something that they own. Um, and by archaeology, I mean the practice itself, right? not just the stuff under the ground. Um, because at the time, there's a lot of suggestions that it was it was a, uh, something that the community of Silwan in particular really got invested in. Um, it paid well, it was okay. It was hard work, but it paid decently. Um, yeah, and, and there's a lot of nepotism as well in the archive that goes on between you know, someone's families, someone worked and so he gets his family involved and and this family return every year. But <clears throat> so this is a form of archaeological agency, right? It's 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 developing skills to do archaeology, to, to learn about the history through digging um, and choosing to do so and making a living from it. 
but there's I sort of take a two-sided look at what archaeological agency for Palestinians at this time really also means and there's another account from um from from Bliss's diary I think um where he talks about a Palestinian woman that he doesn't name um who he says routinely comes to the excavations every Monday or every week, once a week, basically, uh, and threatens to throw herself down the pits. Um, she's she's uh, was upset that there was some kind of middleman who promised that the land wouldn't be dug on, or it was, and it was her land, and there was some kind of confusion, and she turns up every week and threatens to throw herself into the pits, which would obviously prevent digging. Uh, and these excavations are happening on a very tight timescale and with very small budgets. Um, and Bliss writes something like uh, the exchange of a silver coin usually placates her or something like that. And I, when I first read this, I think that I thought that's, you know, it's quite a interesting, you could say even funny story, the way he writes about it. But actually, like this woman uh, is clearly very upset about the agreement that has been taking place without her. Uh, it's happening on land that she believes belongs to her or her family. And she's taken it upon herself to stop the archaeological excavation uh, in order to get something out of it for her. And like the way Western writers uh, uh, at the time would write about this was just would be like an opportunistic. Uh, I don't think they'd say Palestinian. They might say like Muslim woman or Arab woman, you know, just trying to make a coin uh, to, to feed her family or whatever. But I, I actually view this as quite, uh, a powerful example of archaeological agency just flipped the other way, um, i.e. stopping archaeological excavations in the area. So there's a long history of um, very positive relations uh, and positive attitudes towards the excavations. And there are a few snippets of accounts, uh, albeit through um, the Western lens and the, the archival lens of people expressing uh, deep displeasure at um, the excavations um yeah yeah and th and that's exactly what i wanted to ask you mm -hmm. i mean obviously excavating was a job for palestinians uh, in jerusalem or those that came from outside the city and i was wondering how people saw these workers and uh, how did these workers navigate uh through particularly the, the times of of the british where we do have a number of riots, demonstrations, massacres like 1929, and, and other political events. Um, to be to be very honest with you, that's not something um, I've either. It's not something that I've come across in the archive, um, particularly frequently, and so I don't necessarily feel qualified to comment on how they, um, how they navigated the political climate at the time um particularly because a lot of the archive doesn't record there but doesn't record palestinian points of view it's only western um retellings of of what they believe palestinians feel um but um i think how they navigated these political situations definitely depended on who was the head of the excavation at the time and what their sympathies were, uh, or maybe rephrase that, how sympathetic they were to the Palestinian 
um, population in Siwan. You get some mentions of the early Zionist movement, Jews uh, coming to settle uh, in Jerusalem in the area again, particularly Yemenite Jews um, in the archive, in the PDF archive, but it's, it's, it's few and far between. Most of the talk about the local population is about Palestinians, uh, Jerusalemites. Um, so if you have a, a reporter who's who's sympathetic to Palestinians, um, you can see their relationships uh, being very um, caring and, and as, um, compassionate. Um, you know, this, this same person that um, uh, Abu Yusuf, uh, who Sarah Irving talks about, he eventually dies from uh, illness. <clears throat> and the way Bliss and Dickie write about him is actually quite touching. They're deeply hurt. You know, he wasn't just a worker, he was a friend um, and a good friend. Um, yeah, I think the only thing I can say, anything else I can say on that is that Kathleen um, Kenyon's biographies of Kathleen Kenyon and also her excavation reports are quite interesting because she was excavating at a very politically tense time between Israel and Jordan. Um, and it was well documented that Kathleen Kenyon was um, very sympathetic to the Palestinian cause, um, would potentially go as far as calling her an anti-Zionist. Um, and I think the way that the records talk about her interactions with local Palestinians um, is, is um, demonstrates that there was a lot of leeway for um, Palestinians to use her and her position with the British government and the British institutions and the Jordanian government actually um, to um, leverage some sort of better uh, opportunities for themselves. And there's actually, I can add something as well here. So like I said, Kathleen Kenny was excavating at a time which not too long ago in the 60s, which means there's still Palestinians who are alive in Sawan who worked with her. And I was I managed to find a couple. Uh one of them, I can't name them um for obvious reasons. Um, but one of them who now owns a shop in Sawan, um he uh was spoke very, very, very well of her. Um said she was a hard uh a hard woman, he said. Uh <laughs> She was a stern uh, excavation director, um, but he was extremely grateful for the opportunity that she gave him. And I was also speaking, one of the people I spoke to during my fieldwork was Ronnie Reich, who excavated the city of David um, for many years. Um, and he told me that when he started excavating, it wasn't that long after Kathleen Kenyon had stopped her excavations. Um, I think the first excavation he did at City David was in the 80s. Um, and he said that many, many Palestinians from Jerusalem and the villages around Jerusalem came to him with a slip that said, I hereby uh, notify the, the reader that this person is an excellent worker, um, et cetera, et cetera, signed Kathleen Kenyon. Um, and it's... They, they were official signatures, but but had clearly just been printed off a number of times or copied a number of times. Um, 
but maybe that's a little bit of an insight into her, her position beyond the director of an excavation um, to uh, help the local population out, do favors, that kind of thing. Um, but I, I think I should stress that, that the director to local population slash workforce uh, relationship, as far as I've seen, was fairly limited and pretty much always very professional. Um, you know, favors only went so far. Um, yeah. I have a couple more questions. And one is uh, sort of uh, looking at possibly the, the present, uh, but uh, asking also you about uh, the future. How do you see the excavation of uh, the city of David fossil one in the future? Um, well, I, I guess in order to talk about the future, I should quickly like talk about what's happening uh, at the moment or in the last five years. So in the Elad who, who uh, run the excavations, run the tourist site, um, they don't actually do the excavations, but the Israel Antiquities Authority, the IAA, are a subcontractor for Elad and they basically um, do as Elad please. Um, uh, they have been expanding the site massively in the last few years. Um, and, you know, for many, they look at that and they're just expanding the site for tourism purposes. They're um, creating, you know, the site is visited by hundreds of thousands of people a year and then they're creating more infrastructure for to meet that demand but in expanding that site they're also building on palestinian land that has been either forcibly removed or uh, removed through forged documents um, as some ngos claim um, or through palestinian real estate middlemen who uh you know go go to someone in silwan and offer to buy a house for a lot of money um, and then as soon as the, ha the house has changed hands they hand that over back to Alad or Terra Kohanim or another settler group um, so the site has been expanding massively in the last few years um, and didn't really hesitate didn't really uh, stop uh, during COVID during the pandemic only for a couple of months and the result of that is their latest couple of projects um, which is uh, the development of uh, kind of tourist farm uh, in um, Wadi Rababa, so south um, south of the current city of David site, and also the digging of a vast underground tunnel um, that leads up from the Pool of Siloam um, all the way underneath uh, the main road of Silvan of Wadi Hilwe, uh, and then underneath the uh, walls of Jerusalem, and then it comes out basically by the Western Western Wall Plaza in the Western Wall Plaza, um, and so the infrastructure that's gone into this tunnel and the money that's gone into this tunnel is mind-boggling. Um, anyone who's been in it can just appreciate this, the scale of it. Um, and in doing so, uh, I mean it, it's fairly well-known archaeological knowledge that to tunnel is not necessarily appropriate uh isn't the appropriate methodology for um uh, properly preserving artifacts um and properly uh, recording things and if you go to the tunnels you can see that basically like the way it's done um it was explained to me that that they're still digging in squares but horizontally um which kind of doesn't make sense um 
the so the tunnel is one that has a very direct impacts for Palestinians, the archaeology of the tunnel, in that many Palestinians living directly above the tunnel have claimed that their houses have started to um, um, shift in size, cracks appear in the walls, that kind of thing. Um, and it, I mean, it must be said, in, I should say that a lot of people that I spoke to uh, talked about how Elad are very quick to fix those problems. Um, and it, it's kind of like a catch-22 for the Palestinians whose houses are affected because, of course, they want their problems fixed. Elad have uh, unbelievable reserves, uh, cash reserves. So to fix a problem like that is easy. And it basically, you know, guarantees that there's not going to be a, any sort of political issue around it. It um, keeps people quiet, you know, we'll fix your house, fine. Um, so there's infrastructure issues, there's architectural issues that come with the digging of the tunnel. Um, and, but in terms of the archaeology itself, the archaeology represents expansion um, because um, with the development of the tourist site, more and more Palestinian land uh, is being taken. Uh, the most recent one uh, was today, uh, the most recent sort of protest with today um, in the olive groves to the south. Um, and yeah, I think, I guess, so that's, so, so in terms of expansion, that's, um, one of the effects of the archeology span for Palestinians today and the site itself. In terms of labor, um, I was told by an IAA employee that, um, so they were, they are an area manager and they have people who work under them, um, digging. All those in people who work under them are Elad employees. Uh, and I was told by them that um, it's been a long time since since Palestinians have been allowed to work at the excavations, basically. Elad have a no Palestinian working in the excavations. I have a policy of that. Um, and that is justified by um, um, stories that haven't been, um, what's the word, uh, verified. Of, of theft and of slow working, which play into very old um, colonial, but also contemporary uh, Israeli society notions of Arab labor, that kind of thing. Um, but the expansion of the site um, also uh, presents, does present working opportunities for Palestinians who make up the majority of the maintenance staff that work at the site and the cleaners that kind of thing um so obviously as the site grows in size more and more um uh, workers of that nature are going to be needed however it should say that that people who work at that site tend to be ostracized um so i so i was uh, told by um a member of the Albustan Association, which is a neighborhood in Sawan. People who choose to work for Sawan, for, uh, for Elad, tend to be ostracized by the community. Um, so in working for them, there's that further drives a wedge uh, between, between the Palestinians of Sawan who otherwise need to and should be uh, hopefully working together against uh, the threat of their livelihood and their um, their uh, history and, and heritage in, in the in the region.
I have one very quick question. When do you expect your work to be uh, finished? Um, my PhD. Um, I don't know. I think the end of this academic year would be uh, would be optimistic. Um, I still I still would like to complete a bit more field work um, in the spring. So hopefully, eighteen months time from now, maybe sometime in twenty twenty, early twenty twenty four. I think I won't be alone to say that we are looking forward to read uh, your work. This was uh, Joel Stokes, currently a research student at UCL, working on the City of David, Civil One, and the question of heritage and archaeological agency. Joel, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Roberto. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, Please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks and I'll see you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com